Podcast. I think a lot of it is hiring the right people and and people that um, can do the job well, and you have to trust that they're going to really get it done. You know, it, it sometimes feels like, oh, I could do this better, but this, <laughs> but that's not my job. I, in, in undermining them or micromanaging just creates bigger problems. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is another beautiful day here in North Carolina, and this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Ignite Management Services and Liberty Strength. These sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week. So I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. Also, I want to encourage you to join us on our growing YouTube channel. Search for Deep Leadership on YouTube for videos of all my interviews and exclusive content. Well, that is it. Today, we're going to be talking about how to scale your business, and my guest is Peter Mann. Peter is a U.S. Navy veteran and serial entrepreneur, and I talked to him about how he is successfully growing his air purification products business and why he is reshoring his manufacturing back to the U.S. Now, this was a great time sitting down with a fellow Navy veteran who is leading a manufacturing company like I am, and Peter shared some deep wisdom on what it takes to move beyond the startup phase and into an established industry brand. So I know you're going to love this discussion. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Peter Mann. Peter is the founder and CEO of Aranzi, a leading U.S. designer and manufacturer of air purification products for consumers, schools, and businesses. He is a U.S. Navy veteran and serial entrepreneur. Peter's company is experiencing skyrocketing sales due to the pandemic, and he recently bought and is finishing renovations of a large manufacturing facility in Virginia that had been sitting dormant for years. He is actively hiring more than 100 local workers to reshore his company's entire manufacturing back to the U.S. from China. And I am excited to have him on the show to learn from his unique leadership experiences. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's, it's good to meet you. Uh, we have similar backgrounds we talked about uh, before we started a recording. And, uh, and manufacturing is deep and near and dear to my heart, especially manufacturing in the U.S., because I feel like I'm a dinosaur, one of the last dinosaurs <laughs> in the country, and it's good to meet another dinosaur. So, <laughs> so it's good to meet you. Um, but first of all, tell us about your background. How does a former naval officer become a successful entrepreneur? How did, in your mind, were you always going to go down the entrepreneurial route, or did that suddenly just come out and, uh, and, and, you know, an opportunity made it was made available to you. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I mean, for me, I had no idea. Um, it was not part of the plan. I, I got out of the Navy in the I'm, I'm older in the early '90s, mm -hmm. um, and at that time, it was you know, if you had a military experience, it was like, okay, how is that relevant to what we're doing? It, it just wasn't valued. And so, um, but I was fortunate to get hired into a, a large com computer distributor um, during the start of really the 
computer industry, just rapid growth. And so I had 10 years experience at two Fortune 100 tech companies. Um, and, and while I never had taken a business class in my life, I really got on the job MBA type training where I learned marketing, operations, finance, uh, really how businesses work. Um, and that gave me the confidence to when the dot-com bubble burst hit, um, to, to go off on my own and, and start an e-commerce business uh, as my first business. That's exciting. And, and what, you know, I was just curious, you know, the, you were a service warfare officer. Um, you know, I just curious, what were some of the leadership lessons you learned in the Navy that you, that maybe you took away that you use today in your businesses? Cause I know you're, you've got a lot of employees and I'm wondering if, if some of those lessons don't uh, still linger with you. By the way, I got out of the Navy in 1994. So, uh, okay. and, and yeah, I still yeah. rely on a lot of the lessons I learned in those, you know, those early years as a Naval officer. So I was curious to know about that with you. Yeah, I don't know if this uh, this is more of a tool than a trait, but the the plan of action and milestones to POA and M, like for me, is just it's about execution and you know setting a plan, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is when we're going to do it, and this is how we're going to measure success. And to me, that's just been an invaluable tool. Um, th there's a lot of people that have great ideas, but it's like, how do you execute on that? Or when is this going to get done? Like there's, if there's, if there's no, if there's no timeline, um, to it, it, it just kind of just, you know, just kind of drifts along. Whereas for me, it's really helped to focus and get people, um, aligned, uh, and moving together and understanding what we're working towards. And so for me, I think that has probably been the most valuable um, thing I learned in the Navy is just, you know, kind of managing projects, managing teams, um, all, all of that. Mm. I, I guess, yeah. And one other thing that just came to mind is, you know, when, when you, um, you, you know, when you, when you join the military, you don't choose the folks that you're around. You're just kind of like, oh, here's your team. Like you have to manage these, these people. Um, and like, I don't know anything about management, managing people. I'm like 21 when I, was, right. when I started. And then I have all these people, most of whom were older than me that I'm managing with different backgrounds. And so it was really, um, really a, like learning very quickly how to work with other people and work with people that are different than yourself. Because really it's the team that matters, not, you know, any one individual. And so I think that's also been a really strong um trait or skill i think that for me that that was developed in that in the navy yeah it's one of the things when i do talk to college students you know people are going through their their mba programs i i talk about that because you know we as a, as young naval officers got the, the chance to lead people more experienced and older than us and i talk to them i say this is going to happen to you right you're going to be yeah. leading people who are older and more experienced than you so how do you yeah. become an effective leader when you're not the most experienced and the most knowledgeable and the and the oldest. And so we exactly. the Navy did a good job putting us in those situations where we had to learn how to lead people who were, you know, very skilled at what they did. And so I think, and you're right, we couldn't just fire somebody and or replace somebody. You went <laughs> you dealt with what yeah. you went to sea with, right? Exactly. And, you know, and you had to figure things out. Um, it's not like there's no manual. I I not aware of that when, you know, we went through a lot of training to get ready for it, but the, the interpersonal relationships was something you had to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
So one of the things, you know, I mean, I know as a as a as a business owner myself, a manufacturing business owner, scaling businesses is difficult. And and a lot of entrepreneurs struggle to to the, you know, when when the when the when the founder can control everything, it, it goes pretty well. But but when you mm-hmm. scale and you get to a certain size, the founder no longer can control everything. So there's a there's a period that where you have to sort of give up a little bit of control, and many entrepreneurs struggle with that. How have you uh, managed to effectively scale your businesses? How has that worked for you from a leadership perspective? Yeah, I think a lot of it is hiring the right people and and people that um, can do the job well. And you have to trust that they're going to do, you know, um, they're going to really get it done. You know, it it sometimes feels like, oh, I could do this better, but this, <laughs> but that's not my job. I, in, in undermining them or micromanaging, it just creates bigger problems. And so you have to be willing to just to let things go. Um, but I think if you have the right people in place, it, it helps significantly. Um, and communication is the other thing in terms of what's going well, what's not going well, and are we aligned in, in moving together um, you know, uh, in, in what we're doing. Um, but it, it, it can be very difficult when you've done all the jobs. Like if, when I started off, it was a company of one, like you do everything. And, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and for me, it was like, I was glad to get rid of some functions. Cause it's yes. like, it's just like accounting and taxes is, or it was just killing me. But, um, in marketing, I love and sales, not, not so much. And so just finding people that could do those jobs better than I could, it was almost a relief for me to, to not have to, to do it because as you start to grow, you get busier and busier. And it's like, I just can't, I'm just, there's not enough hours in a day, um, to, to do it, but it's really being able to you know, find, find the right people. I think there, it seems like too, there's an element of trust, right. To be able to find the right people, but, it, but you're able to sort of let go and, and, and trust people. And maybe it doesn't happen overnight, but you know, at least for me, um, as I've brought people on my team and I've given them more and more responsibility, I feel like now I trust you. I don't have to worry about that. You, you've got this. In fact, you've got this better than I ever had it. You know, and I think that's exactly. when you get there. Yeah. Um, then, then it makes I think a little bit easier to to focus on the things that you really want to focus on. Uh, and I think that's part of it too. Hire the right people, uh, trust them, and give them responsibility. And uh, yeah, and, and and sort of let go of a few things because you can't do it all as uh, as your business scales. It's not going to scale. Like it's like you're you're going to be the limiting factor in the business. And you know, and one of the things we do is when we have a position and we really get very clear on these are the traits that this person needs to have, and it's interviewing and making sure that, that person is naturally gifted in those ways, um, and they're set up you know, that sets them up for success. Um, and, and every position is different. You know, you need different skill sets for different, different jobs. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's the work you put in on the front end prevents all this problems on the back end. If you make a bad hire, it's not good for the individual and it's not good for the company. It's just, it's a huge distraction. It's very expensive. And so getting the, the hiring process up front and done right is just, it's just, it's just well worth it because you know I've in, I'll admit I've made some, some bad decisions in the past and it's it's painful um, and you just kind of lesson learned <laughs> don't do that yeah yeah and, you know I, one of the things with a small business 
you know, if you have two employees, then you're and you're hiring hiring that first employee. That's fifty percent of your workforce, right? People, you, yeah. you need to understand that. So, so like I, I've worked <laughs> in corporate for twenty two years, and so I had six hundred employees. So if you hire one, it's it's a, you know one six hundredth of your workforce, right? But in your right. small company, it's a very large percentage. So that hire has to be right. It has to, again, the skills that be right. Um, and the attitude and, you know, is it going to be a good organizational fit? I mean, these things are really important in hiring in a small company because it's such a big part of your team when you're right. when you're growing and you're small and you're growing. I think it's really important. Hiring is critical. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you know, as you reflect on your career, you've done your time in the Navy, you worked for large companies now as an entrepreneur. Um, what are, what would you say some of the leadership traits that you've needed on, in the entrepreneurial side that might be different from like maybe the corporate side or even the military side, some things that are kind of unique to entrepreneurialism? Yeah. I, I think to me, like I, I see a difference between leadership and management. And I think the Navy with the authority and the chain of command is very management focused whereas leadership is more around like inspiring people or this is kind of where we're going to go i mean i guess there is leadership in the military but it's it's that's really what entrepreneurship is mm-hmm. um you have to um it, it's also focusing on the customer and the problem that you're solving for the customer and um and building a community um i think management is a lot about you know, this is the way we do things. And, you know, whereas I think leadership is being open to new ideas. It's like the most senior, loudest person in the room shouldn't like dominate conversations. I think the ideas come um, from from everyone. And so I think it's, it's a bit of a different perspective uh, with entrepreneurship because, you know, what I've seen is it's just, you know, the, it's such a competitive marketplace and you can't, like one or two people don't have all the answers. So it's really a team effort and it's really about motivating your team. And, you know, no one wants to show up to work and, and be micromanaged or, you know, you know, you want to go and, and be fulfilled or, you know, cause you're putting eight hours a day and you might as well, like why not enjoy it and why not get something out of it? Mm-hmm. And so leadership is, is creating the environment for that to happen. So people, you know, will be excited to show up. They will do their best. Um, and, and we're all kind of, you know, moving together to whatever this, you know, goal is we're, we're going for. One of the things I noticed, you know, just in terms of my entrepreneurial journey is that, so, you know, there's, there's almost two, two worlds that you live in. One is the future, the vision, here's where we're headed. It's the, the thing that gets people excited, here's our vision, here's where we're going. And then the other side is the reality of the moment, which is sometimes things aren't going very well. You have product failures, you have, you know, you don't land that big account. You, you, you're, you're dealing with the daily struggle of taking something from nothing, right? And so yep. you, you have to sort of face reality, but also have this, um, uh, this, this focus that you're, you're going to win no matter what. And, and keeping that, you know, excitement level with the team, and you can't you can't really let go of the two worlds. You have to sort of stay connected with the reality, but you also have to keep the hope alive for the rest of the team. I don't know if you f- found any of that. Uh, oh yeah, experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's kind of like we're kind of living that a little bit in the moment right now. Is like there's 
um, you know, during COVID things were just phenomenal. And now that we're kind of essentially on the other side of COVID, the, the market is completely changed. Mm. Um, and we've had so many people, we're in the air cleaning air purification space and have been doing, I've been doing this for 20 years and it's just, it's everybody and their brother came out of the woodwork during COVID to enter the marketplace. And so now it's like the market's back to like 2019 levels, but you've got so many competitors, it's oversaturated. Oh yeah. And so it's, it's a bit of a, a, a challenge, but it's, I think a lot of it is just having awareness for what's happening in the marketplace and understanding like, what are we doing that's different? That's going to allow us to really shine. Um, in the near future and going forward and, and kind of reminding ourselves of like, this is what we're working towards. And because uh, <clears throat> it has been a little bit of a roller coaster these last <laughs> last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, but it, you know, and, and, and reminding ourselves that like what we're experiencing is, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, what do we need to do t- to be successful and, you know, not get, you know, you, you're going to take punches as an entrepreneur. You have to be able to, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just part of the game. And yeah. it's, it's like, it's not that you get punched. It's like, how do you react to it? And how do you, re, you know, recover from that and, and get stronger? Or if, or if a mistake was made, you just don't make that mistake again. It's like, got it. Let's, you know, yeah. uh, and, and just, you know, be, be realistic, but, but also stay positive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting world we live in. Cause you're, you're right. You've got to, you got to stay connected with what's really happening on the ground, but also, you know, keep the team excited, motivated. Here's where we're going to go. This, okay. It's a, it's a storm. So how are we going to trim our sails and <laughs> we're going to sail into it? We're going to sail around it. Here's where, here's yep. what we're going to do. And, and yeah, I mean, cause I always use the analogy of like, um, with, um, you know, my time in the Navy was that when things got rough, the seas were, were rough and things kind of looked like it was going out of control a little bit. We all looked to the captain. We're like, is he nervous? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and if he yeah. wasn't, you know, and, and I, I just him not being nervous sort of settled us down, you know, and I think the same thing with our small businesses as we're, you know, we're growing experiences, different trials. They're looking to us, you know, are they, is he nervous? You know, is she nervous? And, uh, you know, should we be nervous? And I think that's something right. that I, I'm kind of, I recognize that we're sort of on stage as leaders, you know, and people are watching us and they're watching to see our reaction to things. And, and I think we have to yeah. be careful not to, pan- you know, we have to be authentic, but we have to be careful not to panic. I think is that we don't want to panic the team, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember we were, this is a Navy story. We were in the Red Sea and it was a little bit of a stressful situation and, I was a gunnery officer and, and the ops officer was my boss, but he was very emotional. And I was just like calm as can be. And the captain like kind of like kicked him out and put me in charge because, you know, he just needed somebody that was, <laughs> that was emotionally stable in a stressful, uh, in a stressful time. And I think that that's really important to not to freak people out. And, but you, you ought to be honest too, at the same time. Yeah. Um, but not be hysterical. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, that's that's counterproductive. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> not good. No, it's not good. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. This episode is brought to you by Ignite Management Services. Ignite is led by Mike Watson, who you might remember from episode 137. Mike and his team believe that everything starts with leadership, whether it's strategy execution or cultural transformation. It's the role of the leader to create the conditions for their people to succeed. The team at Ignite can help you develop critical habits to enhance your leadership capability and transform your business. Ignite Management is now offering the Resilient Leadership Assessment Tool. This is an online questionnaire designed to assess and guide leadership development, coaching, and team building. It provides leaders an opportunity to gain insights into their leadership strengths and development needs. After taking this assessment, you will receive a custom detailed report that provides practical and actionable recommendations to enhance your effectiveness. I have taken this assessment myself and found it to be extremely valuable in helping me make changes to my leadership approach. Right now, Ignite is offering 15% off the price of this tool to the deep leadership audience. Go to ignitemanagement.ca and enter the code START15 at checkout to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger at Liberty Strength. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area that they are lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. Your energy skyrockets, your sleep improves, your confidence increases, and more. But how can you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best people for the job. Don't struggle on your own. Put liberty strength in your corner. Jeremy and his team will work with you to take your physique, mindset, nutritional habits, and more to the next level with his step-by-step, all-inclusive coaching program. I've worked with Liberty Strength for the past two years, and I'm in the best shape of my life, and I'm still hitting strength personal records at 56 years old. If you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at libertystrengthtx.com to find out more and get your initial consultation schedule with him today. One of the things I, I, I mentioned in the introduction, you're renovating um, a facility that was dormant in Virginia, and you're going to be bringing uh, a lot of production that was in China over to the U.S. I'm excited about that. Tell us a little bit about that journey, why you're doing it, and what are some of the challenges facing you're facing by by doing that project? Yeah, we we merged with another company a little over two years ago. It's a electric motor technology company, and um, you know, I, I've known the founder of that company for six or seven years. We, you know, worked together previously. Uh, he built up a, a motor business, retired, and then came up with a new idea to make a, a more higher efficient, high performance motor at a lower cost. And so, um, you know, I reengaged with him and decided to merge our companies together. Um, and in that process, also purchased about 156,000 square foot manufacturing facility that had been sitting idle. Um, And and really this motor technology is really a a platform for us to start to reshore manufacturing. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I've, I've noticed is <laughs> like, uh, <clears throat> and, and there's some surveys that, 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 um, prove this, that most people prefer American meat products, but very few people want to pay any kind of a price premium. <laughs> yes. And so that. that's been our challenge. That's what I've like, learned as well. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, even like five or 10% is like, nope, I'm going with the, with the import. And so, um, we figured out how to make uh, air purifiers and then longer term some other electrical based um, products the same or lower cost than the Chinese imports with the same or better performance. And so now that we've solved it, we're like super excited. And so it's really been about a two, two and a half year process of renovating our manufacturing facility to get it uh, ready for, for, you know, manufacturing. Right now we use it as a distribution center. Um, and we're contract manufacturing our, our products are actually made, made in China. We bring them in and we do the fulfillment. And what we're going to be doing starting next month is manufacturing or taking raw materials and components, making the units and then selling them direct to the end user. So we own like the supply chain or we're very, you know, vertically integrated. Um, and that, that's another way to, to keep costs down is if there's no middlemen in the, in the sales process. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we're on the cusp of. Um, so we're super excited. Um, and then not just air purifiers, but maybe in a year or two, we'll, we'll branch in some other product categories. And so we can really, you know, kind of fill out the factory. No, that's fantastic. That is really, it's really good to hear because I think we hear a lot of maybe politicians talking about, oh, we need to bring jobs back to the U.S. and yeah, but it really takes entrepreneurs. It really takes people who are, you know, and it takes capital, a lot of capital. People don't realize, recognize that, that mm -hmm. many of these, many of these ways that we produce don't even exist in, in, in some cases in the U.S. anymore. So you're talking about, you know, like I have one component in my product line that no one in the U.S. makes. You know, it's a component that I need for my product that is only, it's yep. only made in China and Japan. So yep. I have to get it, I mean, currently sourcing from there, but... I'd love for someone in the U.S. to be able to make that one that one material yeah. for us, but but again, it's it's people don't realize the difficulty of of this because we've in a lot of cases, and I've noticed is that we've lost some of that capability in the U.S. and so we just don't have it. But yet they have it in in in, in you know in in spades over in in China. They they are what we were you know forty years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah, I grew up. I, I grew up in Syracuse, and my dad worked for GE. And there's a lot of manufacturing, and you know, it's kind of, I guess, the Rust Belt. You could call it, you know, in, in the '70s and '80s, and and a lot of those jobs went overseas. But there was some infrastructure in place, like they were making, you know, in the '60s and '70s, colored TVs just two miles from my house. You know, there were all kinds of electronics products and components, and, and it just all left. And so for me, it's pretty rewarding to be able to bring bring it back in a small way. Um, you know, we're not GE <laughs> by right, any means, right. but but it's just it was it's just sad to kind of watch the community just decline, you know, over decades. Mm -hmm. And and um and you know, even in this area where I am in Virginia, there was furniture companies that were kind of just put out of business and you know. A pretty large one, not too far from our factory. Is it used to be a pretty huge company, and they brought some designs over to China, and then China copied them and then resold them as their own, and put these guys out of business. Yep. And yeah, and it's very like 
cutthroat. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's a bit sketchy. Um, I don't know if that's ethical. It didn't seem very ethical to steal someone's uh, no, designs and sell them as your own. I don't think that's, but and it put a lot of people out of work. And so, um, you know, I think if, you know, we figure out how to take cost out, which is really labor, um, is really the main cost difference. Um, we can be competitive, but to your point, it's not like Shenzhen where you go down the street and get any component you want. It's yeah. like the supply chain doesn't exist. Like you have to, like it's taken us two years because we're having to create a supply chain that doesn't exist. The government's not interested in supporting this. Um, you know, they support certain things, which are with like chips and batteries, which I think are very important. But outside of that, it's 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 pretty tough um, to do to rely on the government. I, we don't rely on the government <laughs> for anything. We kind of like we tried, and it's like now nah, we'll do it on our own, or we'll we'll get some you know some some partners to you know help fund us. But you know, this this is kind of how it is. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think, and, and I think that. You know, again, my experience is the government, you know, if they if they get involved with the project, it's, you know, it's in the beginning, there's a picture and then they go off and you're going to create X amount of jobs. And, but there's no yep. real help after that point. You still get, Mm-mm. you still get tax bills, you still get fees, you still have <laughs> government inspections that, you know, that, that'll shut you down if something is, you know, you don't have the right, you know, angle on a wheelchair ramp or something like that. So it seems like. Right. They're they're happy to smile and take a picture, but they're really not helping. N- not like what I saw. You know, I spent a lot of time in China myself, and mm. you see the government almost fully, you know, helping the manufacturers be successful. What do you, what do you need to be successful? What equipment do you need? What you know? Whereas right. we sort of have to fight sort of the the local government, the local you know process, just to get our factories up and running. And and I don't know if you spares the same, which is. You know, there's no favoritism. You just have to meet all the requirements and you, you know, and they can exactly. shut you down for any little, little thing, you know, <laughs> what I found. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, it seems more photo ops than, than anything. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're running to stay in office or not some, it's just sad to say it's, you know, it's just hurts to like, but it's just the reality of it, <clears throat> you know, and, it, you know, if that's the way it is, then you have to find it, you know, part of being an entrepreneur is figuring things out and, finding ways to make it happen. And, um, and the government's really for, for most, most businesses, not going to, not going to be that much of a help. I mean, there are some like SBA programs and some other things that I think can be helpful, but, um, in terms of just getting, you know, a huge seed fund or something from the government, it kind of, not, not how it works. Not how it works. No, not. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I have a passion, I don't like to see abandoned manufacturing businesses. That's always bothers me when I see it. I wonder if you feel the same way when you saw this facility that had been shuttered and that you, you when you saw, thought of the idea of taking a 156,000 square foot facility and bringing it back to life, was there part of you that, that had this desire like I do? Like I, I love seeing an old building come back to life. And I don't know if you have any of the sim- similar experiences with that yeah i mean it's it's really nice i think the the building we were in was like an old volvo just volvo truck distribution center and they make volvo trucks a couple exits down the highway from from where we are but but it said idle for three or four years um and it's it looked like it 
And so, but it, it is, it is shocking to see, you know, when you take something that's dark and dingy and the air conditioning systems are all rusted out and water's leaking through the roof and it, and then to fix all of that stuff and then just kind of turn it into bright, shiny factory. Uh, I mean, we, we've only really done a part of it. We still have like a, <laughs> a good section to go, but we're kind of taking it piece by piece. Um, but it is it is rewarding to see, to see that come back. Um, and you know, we got a good deal on it because we bought it during COVID when nothing was, (laughs) nothing was moving. So yeah. So it's, it's actually worked out great. And and there's in, in our area, there's no other buildings similar to that that are available. You'd have to, and to build it from scratch costs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So much more. It's, it's just, it's not affordable. Yeah. Yeah. We got lucky. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. I mean, you know, it, ours was a tobacco processing made tobacco, you know, and now okay. it was built in the seventies and it was, it would look like a war zone when we walked on day one or like, <laughs> okay, can we ever turn this thing into something, you know, world-class and we, we have, but it took a long, yeah. time. took a couple of years and we only had 50,000 square feet. So you, yep. you have a three times the challenge that we had. So. Yeah. It's big. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big facility. So yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, as, as, as you meet up with other leaders and, and, um, and they're considering reshoring work like this, what are some things they need to be thinking about as they start, um, you know, considering, you know, the reasons for doing this and some of the challenges that they need to be thinking about when they start, um, you know, this idea of bringing work back to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's, it's really good because we have control over the whole manufacturing process. It's, you know, when we manufacture products in China, we send inspectors in to t- tear them apart and check every component and make sure like it's, yeah. you know, just to make sure everything's UL certified and, and all that. Um, but having control over the manufacturing, having quality, um, it's not like in China to ship it to where we are, it's about 60 days on the water. And um, if we have a problem, we're manufacturing just in time. We'll we'll and we're shipping direct to the end user. So we'll know in a week if we make something or, or maybe three days. If if there is a defect, we can fix it right away on the line. And it's we don't have containers coming in that have this problem. Yeah. And so from a from a quality and control standpoint, it's huge. And and also during COVID, the the ocean freight costs went up dramatically. It was it's it's so painful. Um, and so now we're not really uh, having to deal with that so much um, going forward. But the challenge is, is like, like I said before, is how do you get your co- how do you be cost competitive? Like, how do you sell this in the marketplace? Um, and 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 for us, it was you know how can we take labor out and make the assembly so much more efficient to where. Um, and, and reduce the number of parts to where it's like okay, well, you know, we use a quarter of the people to manufacture it than the than the Chinese do, and so the fact that they don't pay anybody anything, we can kind of you know neutralize that. Um, and then and then building a supply chain um, takes longer, and costs more than you than you think it will. Yes, so it's the product, um, and you have to um, kind of plan for that. Like to get something made in China, they are so fast. And they work so hard. They're so hungry. And it's like, I don't, it doesn't sound great, but like I've not found the average American just doesn't work, work like they do. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a bit grueling. Um, I, I was reading recently, they have a, 
996 work schedule. A lot of tech companies, I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it's it's like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, 72 hours a week. It's like... That's crazy. And, yeah. and the average factory worker, I believe, makes ten, eleven thousand $11,000 a year working a ton of hours. Many of them live at the factory. And it's just the quality of life is so poor. And so for me to be able to offer a product, even if it's comparable to what the competition is, to have it made here by like people in the local community and to pay people a living wage and make it in an environmentally responsible way, to me is like, it's the right thing to do. Mm. Um, but but the cost is really critical. Like if, if it costs you twice what it does for your competitors from made in China, it's... I don't know. You'd have to have a good sales strategy or a really good story why somebody would want to buy that then. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, because we, we we worked with a contract manufacturer in Connecticut 10 years ago and the costs were just four times what the Chinese costs were for a comparable product. And and we sold some and people liked it, but it 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 just you're you're playing in a tiny part of the market when you're when you're so premium like that. And so I think it's really understanding your market and can you be successful and do you have any way of being like competitive, um, especially on the cost side, because it's, you know, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. a So it is a cost game. You got to make sure those numbers work. Otherwise you're, it's a lot of work for nothing. If you can't, you know, sell the product yeah. in the market and people are just going to go to Amazon and buy the competitor's product because it does the same thing. And it's, you know, maybe yeah. 10 percent cheaper if you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of brand loyalty uh, right. in general. Right. There used to be more, but now that there's so many options, it's like, eh, this, <laughs> this, this isn't my budget. I'm going to buy that one. And so, you know, but to me, that's why I like marketing so much because marketing is about telling stories connecting with people and, you know, cause we, we don't buy things, most things rationally, we buy them on emotion and then we justify it rationally. And so it's like, how can you craft a story that emotionally connects with someone to where they want to buy it and ideally tell somebody about it. And so that's the, that's the trick. Um, and, you know, reshoring is, is going to be part of our story going forward. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, interest in that, especially, um, even with like world events or if you care about the environment or if you have pride in American manufacturing, there's all different angles. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think your story is going to be popular. I think people are going to like to hear the story. I think that's, it's a story that resonates, um, you know, because yeah. it's hard work. And, and like you said, it's not, not like the government's, if you will, helping you, but you sort of have to do it on your own. You And you yeah. have to, and it's a lot of money. It's a lot of investment. And it's a lot of, um, you know, carrying a lot of burden on your shoulder to be able to do it, but you're doing it and I'm excited about it. And, uh, <laughs> and I think your story is going to uh, resonate with a lot of our, our listeners as well. Um, as we wrap up, what final message would you like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, I would say uh, to stick on my marketing theme is, I, you know, I think about products and you have to build marketing into your product. Um, if you build an average product, you're just going to spend a ton of money, especially if you have consumer product and advertising. Um, so build marketing into your product and make it make it remarkable so it stands out. Great advice. Great advice. Uh, this has been really good. Peter, how can people find out more about you and your company? 
Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Peter Mann, M-A-N-N, and uh, our company is Aravansi, O-R-A-N-S-I.com. And we'll go ahead and put links in the show notes uh, for Peter and his resources. And again, I, you know, leaders, if you're thinking about uh, reshoring your uh, manufacturing, if you're thinking about opening up a factory here in the U.S., and you want to talk to somebody, reach out to Peter. Peter is going to give you a hand, uh, give you some advice and some of the things. Because we, you know, in a half hour, we can't cover all the headaches that he's had in the past two years. But <laughs> I can guarantee, having, having done it myself as well, it's not easy to do. And uh, there are a lot of um, a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of a lot of stress. And uh, But you're doing it, Peter. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story because I think it's a story we need to hear more of in the U.S. So congratulations on your success so far, and I wish you the best of luck going forward with, uh, with all that you're doing. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.